If Jesus wrote a letter to Imprint Community Church, what would it say? If Jesus himself were to commend us for ways we're succeeding, marks of faithfulness and good fruit among us, what might they be? If Jesus were to challenge or correct us, rebuke us for areas in which we've failed or been unfruitful, what would those areas of challenge and correction be? There were seven churches in the province of Asia Minor at the end of the first century that had that precise opportunity. And chapters two and three of Revelation comprise these seven letters or messages. As the book of Revelation is one letter delivered to the churches, um, these individual messages within it are, are pointed words of encouragement, rebuke, and exhortation to these particular churches. And in God's wisdom and care, with while these messages were not customized to Imprint Community Church, nevertheless, their commendations and corrections are relevant and important for us as we strive to walk faithfully in this world as his ambassadors. Indeed, we remember that the seven churches uh, are, is a representation of all of the churches and all of the church globally and throughout the ages. And so these messages, while they're aimed at local congregations and their particular situations, nevertheless, we have the ability, the opportunity to listen in, to eavesdrop, as it were, on Jesus uh, speaking to a local church about strengths and weaknesses and needs and exhorting them to faithfulness. And we would do well to listen for ourselves as we go through these messages. Now, I think that these, uh, I want to give you a broad structure of the book of Revelation. Um, this is not a detailed outline, but a very broad structure. And then I want to talk about how these letters, they're often called the letters to the churches, but really these individual messages to the seven churches fit and really kind of anchor uh, the book of Revelation. Um, so a broad outline of the book would be that chapters one through three are an extended sort of introduction. You have the prologue, you have the, um, the commissioning of Jesus to, to write and record what he's about to see and to give it to the churches. And then you have these two chapters that are filled with messages to these local churches. That's kind of an extended introduction, including the, uh, the, a vision of the son of man that we looked at last week. Then chapter 4 through chapter 22, verse 5, is really the sort of the body of the letter and the primary vision of the letter. So you might call that the vision body or visionary body of the letter. Chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 22, verse 5. All right, that's the, the, the core uh, the content of John's vision that he received from God. Chapter 22, verses 6 through 19, give us concluding uh, exhortations, concluding admonitions, as he's kind of wrapping things up. The vision has stopped, and now he's sort of getting, giving final words of instruction and encouragement to the churches as they read this. And then he ends the book with a benediction, chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. And so in that way, it resembles a, a standard uh, letter that we might find in the New Testament. So that's the, the broad structure of the book. And these seven messages connect to what came before it 
and what comes after it in ways that I think are really helpful in, in understanding what's going on in the book of Revelation. First, each message intro that is the way that each of these churches is addressed to begin with, the salutation, the greeting to them. The intro to each message draws from the Son of Man vision from chapter 1. The images that John portrayed to us about the risen Christ as he saw him in chapter 1, as one with seven stars and walking among the lampstands, and one with the two-edged sword from his mouth, and these things, various aspects of this Son of Man vision are the intro to each of the messages to these seven churches. And so you'll see an aspect of Christ's uh, character or designation from that vision at the very beginning. And so it's, it's drawing explicitly from the introductory vision of the Son of Man. The body of each of these messages, and they're generally brief, but the body of each of these messages uh, foreshadows, mirrors, uh, events and themes that take place throughout the visionary body of the book of Revelation. So chapters four through the early part of chapter 22, um, or maybe even especially through chapter 19, uh, you, you have uh, individual situations addressed that will sound very familiar as you begin reading through the vision in chapters four through 19. Hey, this sounds a little bit like what that church in Smyrna or uh, Pergamum was facing, right? And so it, 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 introduces, as it were, themes and events that we'll find throughout the visionary body of the book. And then the conclusion of each of these messages hearkens uh, to and foreshadows uh, a paradise vision, that is the vision of the eternal kingdom in its consummated state that we find in chapters 20 through 22 of Revelation. So Revelation ends with the depiction of the beautiful, uh, perfect, a peaceful kingdom of God. And each of these messages in chapters two and three uh, point us forward to that sort of paradise vision, some aspect of it, as Jesus calls the churches to faithfulness and promises the future reward that will come uh, as they remain faithful to him. And so I think the understanding, the, the connection, the organic connection of these seven messages to what came before it, and to all that comes after it, both in the visionary body and in the sort of paradise vision on the tail end of it, I think helps us to understand what we see in the book of Revelation. It gives us a bit of a grid uh, through which to see and understand what we find there. So just keep that in mind as we go. One more note about this before we look at the first church uh, and, and consider the message to, to, to the church at Ephesus. Um, the condition of the church. If you regard, again, these seven churches as somewhat representative of all the church, the picture that's painted as we read these uh, seven churches mailed, as it were, uh, is that the condition of the church as a whole seems to be declining. It seems to be a weakened church, a church that is under pressure and is in many ways uh, falling victim to the, the, the temptations and the uh, the, the persecution that has uh, come against them. The, the list of these seven churches is framed by the two most compromised churches. So we'll begin with the church at Ephesus, which is what we're talk about today. And then the last one is uh, the church at Laodicea, uh, which is sort of famous for the, the, the image of God spewing them out of his mouth because of their lukewarmness, right? And so these are the two most compromised 
of the churches uh, of, of the seven churches, and they sort of frame, you know, bookend the, the, the letters. Then the three in the middle, in, in three, four, and five, have both commendations and corrections. There's things about them uh, that they're doing well that Jesus commends them for, and there's uh, things that they uh, have failed in, and Jesus uh, challenges them to repent and uh, and to grow. And then thus churches two and six are the only churches that have no rebuke offered. They have only commendation. They're only uh, encouraged and affirmed in the way they're withholding, excuse me, withstanding uh, under the pressure and giving honor to Christ. And they're simply exhorted to do so all the more. So two out of seven churches are maybe truly healthy churches uh, as we look at these letters. Three of them are mixtures of good fruit and bad fruit, and two of them are seriously compromised uh, and in uh, danger of uh, judgment on the part of their Lord and King. I think there is some encouragement and instruction for us, even in those details, but perhaps that's for another day because we need to keep moving. But I just want to point out and get us thinking about the shape of and condition of the church collectively as we look at these individual messages. Now, each letter, each message follows a similar pattern. I already mentioned that they draw on the vision of the Son of Man, that they uh, foreshadow events to come. Uh, But even more specifically than that, each of them follows the pattern of Christ's designation. So something about Christ from whom the message is given is said to start it. Then there are commendations. If there's anything to commend, there are commendations of here's what you're doing well. And we're, um, he's affirmed in that. Then there are corrections. If there are things to be addressed, yet this I have against you, Jesus says a few times. Then there are commands. In other words, what to do in response to what's been pointed out as an area of weakness. Then there are consequences of disobedience listed. If you don't repent, this will happen. And then finally, there is the promise to those who conquer. The promise to the conqueror. To the one who conquers, I will and drawing from the paradise vision at the end of the book, it's uh, each one concludes with a promise to the conqueror. So that's the, the pattern of, uh, of each of these letters. So let's tell the story today of the church in Ephesus, chapter two, verses one through seven. Now, the story of the Ephesian church is a little bit of background on it. Um, Ephesus, the city, was the most important seaport uh, in the province of Asia at that time. It was a center of commerce and business for sure, uh, but especially of pagan religious culture. Uh, Ephesus was famous for a massive temple there to the goddess Artemis, who was the daughter of Zeus, and all of the various uh, pagan worship rituals that took place there in the name of Artemis. Uh, They were closely uh, connected to and became an important hub of the Roman imperial cult. That is the worship of the Roman emperor and things associated with that. And so and these pagan religious practices were uh, were characterized by indulgences and immorality of all kinds. They were well known for these uh, activities. And this is what Ephesus is sort of famous for. And it's in that context that the church in Ephesus is founded. And the church in Ephesus was founded by no lesser lights in early Christianity than Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18, as Paul uh, ministers to them and their 
they're converted. And in fact, they, they lead and teach Apollos, another man who's named among later in the New Testament letters, who's named as one of the sort of key teachers and leaders in the church. And so it seems that, uh, that Priscilla and Aquila and perhaps even Apollos played a role in the founding of the church at Ephesus. The church received hands-on ministry from the Apostle Paul for a period of about two years that you can read about in Acts chapter 19. And it was pastored for some time by uh, Paul's protege, Timothy. And the two letters that we have from Paul to Timothy are addressing the particular sort of pastoral challenges that Timothy is facing in Ephesus. So we really have a pretty good amount of information um, and a window into the life of the church in Ephesus, at least up until about the year 65. Right. So that mid 60s is when Paul uh, would be martyred. And so his letter to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy is, is generally regarded as his last letter. And so he wrote to Timothy and then was shortly after that executed. And so up until about the middle of the first century, we have a pretty good window into what's going on at the church in Ephesus. But then, of course, there's uh, there's a gap and Ephesus doesn't show up again until this letter right here to the church in Ephesus within the book of Revelation, which is written in the 90s, early to mid 90s of the first century. So um, the pedigree, if you will, of this particular church is pretty substantial. And their reputation has been one of faithfulness and powerful witness to the gospel. But alas, the intervening decades, about 40 years having passed, have included a drift of sorts on the part of the Ephesian congregation. Jesus has some pointed words for them to hear. Let me read to you what the Lord said to this church in Ephesus. Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Three important lessons that we learn from Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus. Number one, doctrinal purity is essential. Doctrinal purity is essential. In verses one through three, they are uh, in multiple ways, commended by the Lord for their uh, faithfulness in teaching, in holding to what is true and rejecting what is false. Notice in verse 1 that Jesus comes to them as the one who holds the seven stars and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. As Jesus himself told John in chapter 1, the golden the, the stars in his hand are the angels in heaven. And the golden lampstands among which he walks are the churches. And so Jesus here is reminding 
the church at Ephesus that there are spiritual resources available to them, right? I have angels at my command and I am in your midst. I know you, I see you. In fact, that's the first thing he says to them. It's the first thing he says to every church. I know your, sometimes it's works, sometimes it's I know your tribulation, but the first words of Jesus' message to each of these churches is I know He's with the churches. He's watching the churches. He knows the condition of his churches, and he's ready with spiritual resources to strengthen them, to empower their obedience. And so he begins, again, by praising them for their hard work, for their patience in trial, for their spiritual discernment. He says, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. Indeed, there were those that Paul warned the Ephesian church about in Acts chapter 20, who would seek to rise up from their midst and and teach false doctrine and even claim to be apostles and claiming some kind of a spiritual authority for themselves that they, in fact, did not have. And so Jesus says, you have recognized that when somebody comes in my name with a false message or claiming false authority, you have rejected them. You have recognized that this is not the truth. Indeed, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, and in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 20, Christians are exhorted to test prophecies, that is, teachings, to test teachings and to hold fast what is good. Christians are warned repeatedly throughout the New Testament about the emergence of false teachers in the church, the need for vigilance and tending the garden of true doctrine and rooting out the weeds of false gospels. That was certainly the case in the first century, and it's still relevant today. There are many false teachings and heretical ideas in the name of Christ that surround us and abound even now. And the wise Christian will be careful to test what he hears, rejecting what is not in accord with God's word and holding fast to what is good. In Paul's final address to the, the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20, before he left them, he, he urges them to beware of wolves that would come among them, false teachers who would uh, seek to corrupt their fellowship. And they seem to have taken this warning seriously. They've listened to that warning. They've steeled themselves with the true gospel, and they're ready. Right? We will reject all false teachers. We will reject all false authorities, and we will hold fast to the true gospel. Fast forwarding to verse 6, after he's uh, rebuke them. He actually returns to exhort, uh, I mean, to encouragement, affirmation in verse six, where he says, uh, "Yet this you have: you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." And so he commends their rejection of the Nicolaitans, whoever those guys are. There's really very little that's known about them. Tom Schreiner says uh, that it's frustratingly obscure uh, to try to pinpoint who the Nicolaitans were and what exactly their message was. In fact, they only appear in the Bible right here, and in uh, the message to the Church of Pergamum in uh, chapter 3. So they only appear twice, and we don't have a lot of details about who they were or what they were teaching. Given the context of, uh, and how they turn up again in the message to Pergamum, it's quite possible that these were false teachers who were justifying and encouraging Christians' participation in the various pagan uh, festivals and, and temple rituals with their rampant debauchery that we've already mentioned 
Uh, and so it could be that they're sort of saying, you know, in Christ, you're free, right? He forgives you of all your sins, so it's okay. Go ahead, right? Our consciences are clear. We're, they're false gods anyways. It doesn't really matter what you do. So it's possible that that was something of, of their message. And so uh, in their rejecting of the Nicolaitans' teaching, there's perhaps even a hint of their moral purity, that they've, they've kept themselves free from uh, the stains of the world and of sin. Jesus makes it clear that he doesn't approve of the Nicolaitans, and he praises the Ephesians for rejecting them. And so I don't want to breeze past that too quickly. I don't think the main point of this message is, uh, is the doctrinal purity piece. So I don't want to hang out there too long, but it is possible. Uh, and, but give, given the, the cultural and religious context of the Ephesian church, uh, their discernment and perseverance are no small thing. It, it, it would have been very easy for this church to compromise, for this church to have uh, succumbed to the temptations of the day to have adopted the spirit of the age and go along with the crowd, to indulge the fleshly lusts that were frequently paraded around them, and to give credence to the teachers who were attempting to sort of ease their consciences into disobedience by offering these rationalizations and justifications. George Eldon Ladd says of the Ephesians, their patient endurance and bearing up for the name of Christ suggests the problem of false teachers faced by the Ephesian Christians was no temporary crisis, but one that exerted a severe test of their steadfast adherence to the gospel. Here was a church outstanding for her doctrinal purity. Doctrinal purity is an essential mark of a faithful church. King Jesus commands faithfulness to his gospel, and his approval of this aspect of the Ephesian church makes it plain that our theology matters. We don't want to brush past that without making that point. The things a church believes and teaches and promotes are important to that church's faithfulness to Christ. So we should ask ourselves, do we as Imprint Community Church want to receive such approval and commendation from the Lord Jesus? Then we no less than the Ephesians must cling to the true word of God, guarding Christian doctrine and understanding. To quote Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, Verse 5, destroying arguments raised against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to obey Christ. Doctrinal purity is essential for the church. But Jesus doesn't stop there. That's not all that's important in a church's life. And in fact, there's perhaps one that eclipses the importance of doctrinal purity. And that's this. Doctrinal purity without love is empty. Doctrinal purity without love is empty. And that unfortunately is what apparently we see. It's what Jesus sees in the Ephesian church at this time. They're strong on discernment and they're short on love. He says, but this I have against you, verse four, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now the a literal translation of that Greek is your first love. So you may have grown up hearing translations that say that, right? You have abandoned your first love. But I think the ESV rendering gets the right idea of what's meant here. It, it's referring to the love that the Ephesians had that characterized their lives at the start of their Christian journey. Somewhere along the way, perhaps in the, the ongoing fight for doctrinal purity, their affections for God and for each other have been chilled. And so they're pure, doctrinally speaking. They're vigilant about truth, but they're not loving well. 
Love, of course, is to be the hallmark of Christian identity and witness. Christ told his disciples in John 13, 35, that their love would be the means by which the world would recognize them as his disciples. If you don't have love, if you're not characterized by love, how is anyone going to recognize you as belonging to Jesus? Is what he would essentially say to his disciples and to his churches. In Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39, Jesus said that the two greatest commandments of all are these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. At some level, the faithful Christian life can be boiled down to these two lifelong pursuits. Love God and love people. Like the song says, there's a song on Christian radio that's popular right now that says that it all comes down to this, love God and love people. There's something very right in that simplicity. To be sure, loving God entails thinking about him, studying his word, correcting false ideas, cultivating a true picture of who God is and how he's made the world, right? We are called to love the Lord your God with all your mind and so there is an aspect of thinking and study and 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 weighing arguments and, and truth claims against one another and against the word of god so a part of loving god involves theological thinking right and doctrinal growth and integrity and loving people will require boundaries established by truth love doesn't always look like affirmation sometimes it looks like challenge, accountability, correction, and doctrinal purity will have something to say about where we draw those boundaries. I can't love my neighbor well if I erase the boundaries of truth and go, it's okay, it's all good. And don't we see that happening all around us, even in churches who proclaim Christ? We'll just blur the edges here a little bit so that we can say, no problems. We affirm everybody for all reasons, it doesn't matter. That's not love. And it's not love because it's blurred the boundaries of truth. So again, doctrinal purity is not unrelated to love. It's, it's connected to it. But as Paul tells us so poignantly in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I know the last time you heard a gong or a crashing cymbal grates. It, it's a little hard to handle. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. No amount of doctrinal purity, no amount of self-sacrifice, no amount of amazing spiritual displays can possibly take the place of love in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ and in the collective life of a church that bears his name. To quote George Ladd one more time, he says, doctrinal purity and loyalty can never be a substitute for love. 
And the Ephesians had made an unnecessary trade-off regarding truth and love somehow is mutually exclusive. But we can either be truth people or we can be love people. And that is not the way of Christ. Christ's correction of their distortion makes it plain that faithful Christian identity and witness must include both doctrinal purity and enduring love. Perhaps reminded of Jesus himself and the way that John describes him in the prologue to his gospel in John chapter 1. As he said that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And the way he describes his glory is this, full of grace and truth. And his rebuke of this church is not subtle. It's not, hey, man, you guys are like at a 90, all right? But to get all the way up to an A, let's just be a little nicer. That, that, that's not what he said. Like, this is, this is serious. He does not treat this failure to love lightly. He tells them in verse 5, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. That is, I believe, works that are motivated by love, works that are characterized by love. Do the good works, maintain the doctrinal purity, but do it with love in a way that people can tell these people care. These people have the the warmth and kindness and love of Jesus within them. And if not, sober words, and if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This is not a visitation of the Lord that the church should hope for. That the Lord would come to them, not in kindness and friendship, but in judgment. And this is what he warns. If you will not love, if you will not change the character of your life as those who hold the truth with love, then I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. I don't think this is a reference to the final judgment at the return of Christ. I think this is a reference to a visitation in history whereby Christ would would visit the church in a spiritual sense and apply a temporal judgment upon the church. And so the removing of the lampstand in this sense, I think means one of two possibilities. Number one, you'll just stop existing as a church, right? If you will not bear up not just with doctrinal purity, but with the love of Jesus characterizing your life and your heart for one another and your heart for your neighbors, then you'll just stop. I'll just make sure that you don't exist anymore. Right? I will see to it that your doors close. Don't we think that Jesus has that authority and that ability to make sure that a church doesn't continue to exist if it's bearing false witness about Christ? Or perhaps even more chilling, he would simply remove his divine presence from them. Maybe the church continues meeting, continues its ministries, continues its programs, keeps doing what it's doing. Jesus just isn't there anymore. He's just removed his divine presence. The spirit of God no longer gathering with the people, empowering them for life and mission. If Christ was prepared to visit the Ephesian church in this task of judgment, it is conceivable and and even likely that he has similarly visited many churches throughout history who failed to maintain 
faithful, uh, remain faithful, and thus their lampstands were similarly removed. What a sobering thought. Would you even know it? How many churches have continued existing without even realizing the Spirit of God left a long time ago? That thought should give us pause. What does it look like for a church to be faithful in doctrine and deficient in love? All right. So we clearly have a cautionary tale here, right? We don't want to be like the Ephesian church who are like rich on truth and doctrine, but who are like fuzzy on, on, on love, deficient on love. So, so what would that look like? How would we even know if that's who we are? How would we identify a church that's, that's falling into that pitfall? Might look like a church that's so energetic in their articulation of theology that they're enraged by those who disagree with them. Just mad about everybody who doesn't see it the same way. In our desire to learn and speak rightly of God, do we belittle other people made in God's image? Twitter is a cesspool of that, by the way. I don't know if you've looked at Christian Twitter recently. It is a mess of angry, belligerent, hateful prophets for Christ who are strong on doctrine, but man, they hate their brother. Dangerous. It might look like a church that's so serious about sin that it beats up on sinners. In our desire to take sin seriously, do we make it, create an environment that makes it difficult for people to confess their sins? could possibly be honest about what I'm struggling here because they will never look at me the same again, right? So I better keep this mask on. Figuratively. (laughs) Might look like a church that's so careful to rightly parse the issues of the day that they overlook the suffering of people all around them. In our desire to understand our times, Do we neglect opportunities to give the love of Jesus to our neighbors in need? These are just a few possible snapshots of a church that's characterized by doctrinal purity, but not by love. Maybe you have other churches and experiences in your own life that come to mind. Elsewhere in the New Testament, John wrote these words. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. That is the brethren, the brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God. Whoever does not love abides in death. It's 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 and verse 14. The, the mark, the way that we know that we've passed from death to life is what? It's not doctrinal purity. It's love. That we have love for the brothers. John agrees with Jesus. This is deadly serious. The presence or absence of love among the people of God is no trivial matter. It is the primary identifying mark of the true people of Jesus Christ. And thus, conversely, it's a strong indicator of who is only pretending to belong to him or who are themselves deceived into thinking they belong to him, but he's left. That first John passage goes on to say in verse 16 by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers friends here's the key how do we cultivate a heart of love for god a neighbor that's what's come that's what it comes down to right remember where you've from where you've fallen repent 
and do the works you did at first. Okay, how do we, how do, how does the church do that? How do we ensure that we're cultivating a heart of love whereby we're, we're doing good works and we're maintaining doctrinal purity, but we're doing it in a way that actually bears the love of Jesus Christ. In a word, look at Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. How do we even know what love is? It's Jesus laying down his life for his friends. This is how we know love. He is the perfect picture of love, the prime example of what love looks like in action. And so he becomes our example. We want to follow in his steps. Jesus didn't fight for his rights. He laid them down. Jesus didn't fight for his own you know, sense of, uh, of self-protection and boundaries. He fought for, for others. Jesus wasn't too busy or too clean or too proud to dine with sinners and outcasts. But Jesus is more than just an example to us. He's more than just a picture of love. Jesus himself is the means by which we find the strength to love. It's because Jesus laid down his life on the cross, suffering in our place for our sins, that we have the spiritual resources available to us to walk in love toward God and toward neighbor. Because we are united to Christ by faith, his resources have become our resources. So we have a bottomless supply of divine love from which to draw you can't just squint real hard and, and dig a little deeper into yourself to grow in love. Okay, just be a little more loving. We don't have it in ourselves. No, we, we must lean on Jesus. We have to plead with him in prayer to grow the fruit of love in us by his spirit. We have to water the seeds of love that he's planted by remaining in his word. We have to open ourselves to brothers and sisters in Christ who themselves may be a conduit of God's love into our own lives. In word and deed, as John says. Doctrinal purity without love is empty. May that never be said of us. The third lesson we learn from this church is this. Doctrinal purity grounded in love will be rewarded. Doctrinal purity grounded in love will be rewarded. Verse 7, as Jesus concludes this message to the church in Ephesus, he points them forward. He gives this sort of a pro prophetic uh, formula. He who has an ear, let him hear. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel long before him had used that very same announcement. If anybody hears this and has the spiritual capacity to understand it, let him hear this. Jesus had used that himself in teaching in parables in Matthew 13 when the disciples said, why do you talk to people in parables? He said, it's so it's to fulfill what Isaiah said, that hearing they might not understand and seeing they might not perceive. And so when he says, let him who has an ear, let him hear, this is what he means. Let him who has the spirit of God at work within him to grasp the spiritual truth, let him hear it. And so it's a reminder that the words of Jesus are to be taken and understood spiritually and empowered by the spirit. And the fact that it is to the churches, he doesn't just say, he who hasn't hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church, or to this church. He says to the churches, certainly meaning all seven of the churches that are receiving this letter, but more broadly than that, 
all the churches in every age. Whoever has the, the ear of the Spirit, let him receive this message from the Lord Jesus. It's for the church at every age. It's a call to lean in, to listen carefully. And here's what he says. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If you were to flip to the back of your Bible and look at the final chapter, Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 3, the, the vision of paradise that John sees begins like this. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. The last time we saw the tree of life was when Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Remember, God said, lest they take and eat of the tree of life and live forever, and they kicked them out. And the tree of life appears at the very end of the Bible, in the paradise of God, with the healing of the nations, with the presence of God. Again, it's a symbolic representation of mankind's return to an Edenic pre-fall state where we're in God's presence, we're with life eternal, we're forgiven and restored, we belong to him, we're healed, nothing accursed is there. To the one who conquers, to the one who remains faithful, who perseveres, yes, in doctrinal purity, also in love, to him I will grant to eat of the tree of life. What a gift. It wasn't too late for the Ephesians. With the description here and the seriousness that Jesus addresses, their deficiency of love, it might be easy to think, oh man, it's curtains for, for Ephesus. They're done for. But it's not too late. Jesus had a strong word of rebuke and a stern warning of judgment to come, but he still held out the promise of everlasting peace in God's presence to those who persevere in love. The Ephesians still had an opportunity to heed the warning of their king and by God's grace, correct course. Did they? Do you wonder how it turned out for the church in Ephesus? Were they able to write their course and by God's grace, cultivate anew the love for God and neighbor that had characterized their lives at first? The Bible doesn't give us a glimpse into the church's future, but we do have a lengthy letter in, in the early years of the second century from a bishop in Antioch named Ignatius writing to the church in Ephesus. So writing to this same congregation in which he praises the church for their, quote, habit of righteousness according to the faith and love in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And he speaks of their bishop, a man named Onesimus, as, quote, a man of inexpressible love. That gives us at least a reasonable confidence, a reasonable hope that, that they took Christ's admonition seriously. And that within a couple decades, perhaps their lives together as faithful witnesses to Christ were characterized again, after all. Friends, we can hear and heed the message of Jesus as well. 
We can take up his call to doctrinal purity grounded in love and move toward one another and toward the world around us with a cross-shaped love, laying down our lives for the good of others. May we find in Jesus Christ the strength and perseverance to continue in love and faithfulness until one day we sit together under the healing branches of the tree of life. Let's pray.